Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the 4S podcast. My name is Simon Barry. I am a coach and mentor to founders, entrepreneurs and businesses, specifically focusing on what makes your business grow and what makes your business shine. I focus on four key areas, what I call the four S's, systems, strategies, skills and scale. So I help your business scale. So if you hang around to the end, I'll let you know how you can get in touch with me. But today we're going to have a fantastic guest and I hope you enjoy. Today we welcome Simon Hartley, a peak performance expert who works with elite sports and business people. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thank you very much. Very good. Good. So for the listeners who don't know you, could you please give us a brief introduction? Yes, indeed. Um, I am Simon. Uh, my background is sports psychology. So traditionally, that means helping sports teams and athletes to get their mental game right. Um, more recently, though, I've been applying the same stuff to different audiences. So I do what I call sports psychology in business, in education, in charities, in healthcare, in all sorts of fields, in medicine. Um, just to help people to get their headspace right so that they can perform at their best. Um, my real interest, though, I guess over the last 20 or so years has been to understand world-class performers, to work with them and study them, uh, distill down the principles that make them great so that we can start adopting them and obviously then become great too. Fantastic. It's a, it's a fascinating area. So how did you get started in this particular field? Yeah, uh, the truth is by failing some exams. Um, I... I went to college, I took maths and physics because I wanted to be a pilot when I was a kid. Um, I failed my flying aptitude test and because I didn't really like maths and physics, I then failed maths and physics and I had to sort of restart my education. So uh, I decided to study sport because I loved sport, um, the academic side of sport. And honestly, I expected to come out of my, so I did an A-level uh, sports studies and then I did a degree in sports science and I expected to come out as a physiologist, but it was the psychology that really started to intrigue me and, and interest me. And, you know, it sort of piqued my curiosity. So I studied sports psychology and then from sports psychology studied how actually sports psychology is a misnomer and it's really human psychology and then started applying that to everybody that I work with. Amazing! Isn't it funny how you can look at a, a failure as a as a turning point that's actually shaped your career and pushed it in an entirely different direction? I think a lot of people that can uh, certainly resonate resonate with them. Yeah, absolutely. So, are there any success stories that that you could share with us that you've uh, come across in the past? Yeah, I mean there are loads, and there there's all successes for different reasons. Um, I mean, one of them that uh, that still means an awful lot to me. Um, I worked with a swimmer. Um, a guy called Chris Cook, who was based up in the Northeast for about eight years, seven, eight years, he and I worked together. Um, and he went from being absolutely nowhere in the world. He wasn't even in the top four in Newcastle um, to becoming a double Olympian, an Olympic finalist, double Commonwealth gold medalist and double Commonwealth record holder and actually finished his career seventh fastest in history in his event. He was a hundred meter breaststroke swimmer. And it was that journey from my point of view that made that a real success because, you know, in, even in his own words, he wasn't a particularly talented athlete. He never really thought that he was capable of those amazing feats and yet came out as a genuinely world-class athlete. So that that's kind of one success, but also I think, you know, I've worked with junior squads, uh, junior GB squads on one occasion. I had a, a young girl, she was 14, come up to me, um, during a quiet moment on a GB camp and she said um, I've been thinking about ending my own life and you know I'm not a clinical psychologist but just to help her to find the help that she needed and support her through that process was a success from my point of view. Um, I had a, another junior athlete came up to me one day and said um, you know I, I think I'm going to fail all my exams I don't know anything um, so we worked through helping her to build her confidence to take her, her exams. Um, I've worked with entrepreneurs, um, some of them who have been sort of staring into the void, you know, staring down the barrel of a gun, thinking I'm out of my depth. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I can see the business going under if we're not careful. Turning that round, you know, one of them's now got a very, very healthy multi-million pound business, very, very profitable. 
um, an executive who was on the edge of depression and was like a ticking time bomb, suicide waiting to happen, um, who, again, we got the help and support to so that he could turn his life around. You know, he's now doing very well. So in, in their own way, they're all successes, if you know what I mean. There's, there's you know, there's, there's some that are less obvious than going and competing at an Olympic Games, but they're still successes. Absolutely, absolutely. Which brings us very neatly onto the next question. So success isn't often used, but quite a subjective word. How do you go about working with others to define and achieve their version of success? Yeah, this is a, a great question, I think, because honestly, I think most people get drawn into a stereotypical view of success. You know, we almost adopt the, the view of success that Western culture has given us. Um, so many people that I meet, particularly in the entrepreneurial domain, talk about time and money, freedom and all those sorts of things. But honestly, I think that's a fairly narrow view. And not, I think a lot of people haven't really considered the question, if I'm honest. They've just, they've just adopted the social norm on this one, the cultural norm. So I tend to f start by focusing on passion, meaning and purpose. You know, let's understand what you're really passionate about, what means something to you, you know, what's important to you, um, your purpose, your reason to be on the planet and do what you do, the gift that you can give the world. Let's focus on finding that and understanding that. And once we've got that, I think success tends to define itself quite easily um, or more easily anyway. I mean, my own personal view of success is that I'm successful when I'm proud of the person I am. I'm proud of, you know, being who I am. So it's, it's being proud of who I am, not what I do, not what I've got, not what I've achieved, not any of those things, but being proud of myself as a human being and understanding that, you know, I've, I've kind of got the character that I'm proud of. Um, you know, I display the values that I'm proud of. That's, that's success to me. It's not success to everybody, but I think helping people to understand that they can question the social norm, the, the cultural norm, and actually draw up a view of success that matches their own values um, and is probably aligned to their passion, meaning and purpose. You know, it probably means understanding their passion, meaning and purpose, and then living that. Um, that I think is where most people uh, find their understanding of success, but also are able to, to go and live it and feel that they're, they're achieving that kind of success. Absolutely. I would, I would absolutely agree because a lot of people attach their kind of definition of success to something that's going on externally. And that's where there can be problems because there can be a big kind of disconnect between what they think they should do and then aligning with what you said, you know, their passion, their purpose, their desires, and, and also what's probably realistically achievable. And that's where things get almost completely out of whack, um, which is quite, quite interesting. Yeah. And years and years ago, I mean, I can remember um, when I was in my, sort of early to mid twenties. And I was still quite sort of young and impressionable as most people are in their early to mid twenties. I was working in elite sports. I was working for a, a premiership rugby team. And one of the guys I was working with, who was quite experienced, you know, he'd, he'd been around for a lot of years. Um, you know, he'd earned his gray hair and all that sort of stuff. Um, he said to me, he said, in this industry, the more successful you are, the more you get paid. So the better you are, the more you get paid. And at the time I sort of bought that, you know, I, I took that on as an idea because I thought this guy's experienced, he's been around, he probably knows what he's talking about. And for a while I started to think that the amount of money I earned was a reflection on how good I was until about three years later, um, I hit a point where, you know, we'd started our own business. It was difficult. We'd found, um, you know, that the, the the offering we had was probably ahead of its time, quite honestly, and that it was difficult to get people to relate to it. So we, we found it economically very tough, financially tough. Um, I'd got to a point where I was driving along and we'd sold the big car. We bought a small car. Um, it was a little bit of a kind of clapped out old banger. Um, we would, I just made the decision to either pay ourselves or pay the team. And of course I decided to pay the team. So we were really kind of on the edge of being broke. And, and those words that he'd said to me echoed around in my head. And I questioned them. I said, is that actually true? Am I worse now because we haven't got as much money? And I thought, no, that's not true. I'm probably as a practitioner, I'm about three times as good as I was then. 
but we've got less money. So it's not true. It doesn't work. And that was the point at which I kind of I hit this understanding, which I've kept for years. I am not the money in my bank account. I am not the size of my car. I am not the size of my house. You know, none of those things actually reflect how good I am at what I do. And they certainly don't reflect how good I am as a person, as a human being. So let's chuck all of that out the window, because if I start to tie my self-worth to any of those things, I'm going to be in trouble because some days we'll have more money. Some days we'll have less, you know, somebody might walk, you know, knock on the door, metaphorically speaking, and say, we love what you do. Here's a contract for a million pounds. Did I become better in that moment? No, I didn't. We just got more money. So it really helped me to question that notion and start to draw up my own understanding of success. Absolutely. That's brilliant. I think the, mentioning the money is, is a really important point because so many people just attach that, you know, I'm only a success if I'm, you know, I've got tons of money in the bank and everything's fine, but it, mm. it doesn't necessarily follow like that. And if you can attach um, what you would attribute to success to something that's outside of that, you know, when you, you talked about your achievements or your, your feelings or, or how you view yourself as a human being, I think that's a, a much more powerful and, and centered way of, of defining yourself yeah so let's let's move on to failure i think it's uh, going to ring bells with all the <laughs> the entrepreneurs uh, listening to this podcast uh, how do you deal with failure and and of course we know this is part of the the success journey but a lot of people just have a problem overcoming this you know not only with how they're viewed externally but also how, how they deal with it internally as well yeah absolutely you, interestingly i wrote um, a post on this um which we published on medium and um, it's part of the easier said than done series um, because absolutely embracing failure is something that's very easy to say and actually pretty difficult to do as a human being. Um, first of all, yes, I've started to learn that failure is valuable, but it doesn't stop it from stinging. I mean, it does still sting. It does still hurt whenever you hit that point of producing something and you've put your heart and soul into it. And actually you come to that realization that it's not good enough. Um, but I did start learning quite early on, I guess, um, one of the first opportunities that I really remember, uh, experiences that I really remember was, was actually at university. And when I was in my first year at university, I would write some assignments, I'd give them to my tutor and they would come back with red pen marks all over them and probably not a very good grade. And I would kind of get downhearted. And initially I was thinking, well, why can't you just love it? Why can't you just say it's wonderful? Why can't you put, give me a great mark and write, love it, love it, brilliant, all over the, the essay? That, you know, that's, that's what my first initial emotional reaction was. And over time, I started to learn that when I read through the comments and I used the feedback, I produced something that was better. So I started to learn that there was really real value in this critical feedback. And then over time, the, the red pen marks decreased and the grades got better. And one day, I think I was doing my master's degree at the time, I handed in this piece of work, I got it back and there were no red pen marks anywhere on it. And I said to him, you haven't even read this, have you? He said, no, I've read it. I said, where are all the red pen marks? He said, there aren't any. I said, come on, there must be something that can make this better. Try harder. Come on. And he just laughed his head off at me because I was getting upset that there was no critical feedback. Um, I've started to learn that actually the world-class performers that I've come across view critical feedback like oxygen. You know, if you, if you deny me critical feedback, you deny me a chance to get better. They, rev they view mistakes in the same way. They will often say, when I stop making mistakes, I'm worried because it means I'm not pushing hard enough. I'm not, I'm not outside of my comfort zone because whenever we do step outside of our comfort zone, we make mistakes and fail. So from their point of view, the mistakes are just a sign that they are, they're operating outside of their comfort zone, which of course they understand is the place that they learn, they improve, they get better. So the alarm bell starts to ring for them when they're not making mistakes and failing. So, so I started to learn that that's part of the dynamic. The other thing I learned from world-class performers that I can sort of apply onto my own life now is that they're not driven by success. World-class performers are not driven to succeed. They're driven by passion. They really believe in what they're doing. It's important. They're passionate about it. They care about it. And actually that trumps 
success or failure. And bizarrely, they become ultra successful because they're willing to fail enough to get there. If they were driven by success, they would stop when they failed. They don't stop when they fail. They push themselves to fail. In fact, in the words of uh, one of the world champions I worked with, I asked them, how do you know where the limit is? Because I was interested in how you find your limits, how you tr find your true limits. And he said, you have to push it until it breaks and then come back a little bit. That's where you know where your limit is. So, so I started to learn a lot of these things. And actually, I've been applying them recently to a project that I'm working on. So ha having written uh, eight nonfiction books, I embarked a few years ago on a, on a brand new book writing project, uh, which this is a fictional book. And I've also started to learn that the, the sort of things, the skills base that you develop as a nonfiction writer that make you quite a good nonfiction writer are the polar opposite of what you need to be a good fictional writer. So actually I've developed a lot of skills that make me a terrible fiction writer. So I've got to un unlearn all of those as I go through. Um, I created a, you know, my, my first draft of this book, 83,000 words, and I sent it to an editor <laughs> and then I got the feedback from the editor. It was an email and the subject line on this email read book feedback brackets, brace yourself. And I, I read through the first paragraph or so, and, and the opening line sort of said, well, the good news is at least technically you've got a story because it's got a start, middle and end, but that's where your good news finishes. And um, I, I read through it and Caroline, who was my wife, who was sitting next to me, saw my expression changing. She said, what's up? I said, oh, I've just got the uh, feedback from the editor. She said, oh, let's have a look. So I handed her my phone. And she's reading through it. She got a paragraph in and she said, I, I can't finish reading this. And she handed it back to me. And she said, you don't have to keep going. Honestly, you can just stop. Nobody's expecting anything from you. You know, you don't have to do this. You don't have to push yourself through it. And I started to realize that actually when you get to that position, you have to be quite good at embracing failure because this did not feel bad. I mean, if we were scoring this on a zero to 10 scale, it's probably it probably isn't quite a two out of 10. And I've poured my heart and soul into it. I've worked months on it and clearly it's rubbish. But that's the point where you start to kind of kick in and understand a couple of really critical questions. The first one is, why are you doing this? And the second one is, how much do you want it? And I started to go back to the reason that I was writing it in the first place. You know, I'm not writing it for me and I'm not writing it to be a wonderful fictional author. I'm writing this book to help teenagers, um, kids about the same age as my kids, who are going through all sorts of life challenges at the moment. And I'd love to be able to share with them really powerful principles from philosophy and psychology. I know that a non-fiction book is not going to do that because it'll be too dry, too boring. They won't even pick it up and open the front cover. If I can write it into a fictional book that's really engaging but help them to understand the principles and how to use them through a fictional story, there's a really good chance it'll be valuable. That's why I'm doing it. So go back to that. Now, it's a two out of 10. Okay, fine, I want to improve it. Let's go and do another draft. Let's do another draft after that. Let's just keep working on it. You know, this is the stuff that I tell athletes. It's fine, it's a two. You know, forget the judgment. It's not good, bad, indifferent, terrible, whatever. It's a two out of 10. So what do we do to improve it? So I started working on it. I did another what, four drafts from there, handed it to another different editor on this occasion. Uh, it's now about a five out of 10. So off we go again. I mean, I know it's been months and months and months and months of hard work. And I know that, you know, initially I'd, I'd just love somebody to have said, this is a brilliant book. Wow, fantastic. But clearly it wasn't. So get your bumming gear, crack on, get your head down, keep working on it. Um, and, and it's understanding that, each draft is getting better and better and better to the point where once it's publishable, once I'm really happy with it, it's likely to be really valuable to lots of teenagers. So, you know, keep working on it, keep building it. Every bit of feedback's valuable. Every bit of feedback will make it better. Keep going. Absolutely. It goes back to that point about the red marks, doesn't it? You need those kind of little red marks and, you know, little points where you're kind of guided and that kind of failure helps you give you that feedback to kind of guide you to that route and uh, you know obviously success is that kind of end point but you, you're right it's got to be 
down to your intrinsic reasons for wanting to do it or, or your passion that drives you and uh, mm. if, if you can look internally and analyze what those things are then it will help you see whether you're going down the path i mean my my personal failure story was i was terrible academically and i failed everything i didn't go to university and and at that point at a young age i was you know being told not only by my friends who were hey i'm smarter than you i'm off to university mm. even my parents you know you're not going to amount to anything in this life and as, as a teenager that's very tough tough to hear so uh, i forlornly went off and got myself an office job but i worked in the office job I, I saw that failure as as a drive and a passion for me to kind of not only prove to people judging me but also to myself that actually can i make something of myself so by the time a lot of my friends had come out of university i was already a manager and that kind of drove drove me in a different way so so it's funny how you can you can often look back and find a, a moment and a pivot that often at the time could seem very bad, but actually can lead on to a, an entirely different way of doing or being or, or a different career and, and failure can, can really help shape you that way. So so I, I want to pick up on another point. It's like the attitude to failure as well. Mm, because how, how you deal with it and how you think about it, you know, it's it's often certainly in the entrepreneurial circles, it's it's a little bump to try and say, okay, you're going down a path you maybe don't want to go down this is kind of bump you down the right way and, and so many people see failure as an absolute disaster i need to stop and not i need to go away and i like your kind of phrase look at the look at the red marks and and have a critical think about this and, and see and analyze and just take a step back and so many people just don't do that and then you know react and uh, end up giving up or something and yeah and i think if we start to look at the words failing and failure Failing isn't necessarily the issue. It becomes an issue when we turn it into failure. And the thing about failure is it's, uh, it's personal. You know, we, we, we almost end up consuming this into our identity. People don't say, I am a failing. They say, I am a failure. The big problem is that when we fail, we start to view ourselves as a failure. We use that almost like as evidence, as confirmation that we're a failure. So we start to avoid things, opportunities, experiences that might make us fail. Because every, every little confirmation, every bit of uh, evidence that we add into our own mix to confirm that we're a failure is a threat to us. Um, and I think this is the dimension that really scuppers people. If we saw failing for what it is, it's not that big an issue. If we start to personalize it and build it into our own identity and see ourselves as a failure, it becomes a massive existential threat. Um, and that, that's the bit that I think we need to take apart. Absolutely. And, and again, as you said, you know, your, your essential zone you need to be in is, is just slightly out of your comfort zone. You're not so far that you're completely out of your depth, but it needs to be uncomfortable and you need to be kind of on that ragged edge so that you're able mm -hmm. to grow. And if, if you're not there, you're not growing, which, which arguably is probably worse than failure because that's stagnation. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and some people would say, actually, the not growing is failure. <laughs> you know, it's just that we don't see it in the same way or experience it in the same way. Lots of people would say, you know, if I'm not improving, that is the failure. You know, if I'm firmly within my comfort zone, that is the failure. I might not make mistakes or have those kind of experiences of failing on a regular basis, but the big failure is not growing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, let's move on to peak performance. So how, how can you maintain peak performance and discipline, especially you know, where we're in the times of COVID, if, if people are listening during this time and, and hopefully <laughs> this will pass and years later, but this is, this is <laughs> what's going on now. And, and what can we do to measure and improve our peak performance? Yeah, for me, this really comes down to character. Um, there are characteristics that will really, really help us through this period. Characteristics such as resilience, such as tenacity, such as discipline, such as consistency, you know, all of those, courage. Um, and it's really understanding that these are characteristics, they're elements of our character. So if we want to develop them, we have to understand that we're not talking about knowledge here. 
So you can't go and take a course on it or read a book on it or whatever and just develop that characteristic. For example, you can't read a book on courage and become more courageous by reading the book. It could inspire you to, it could even instruct you to, but you can't become more courageous just by reading it unless you're scared of reading books, in which case that will be a way for you to develop courage. You see, we, we build courage, we develop courage by taking on challenges. And it's normally the tough ones. Um, particularly it's the it's the choices we make when we hit those challenges that really shape our character so for example you know i remember developing courage by taking on my fear of spiders when i was uh, about 18 years old um, I, I came home from playing rugby i was sort of head to toe in a mixture of mud and blood and, and I, I was living with my gran at the time she didn't have a shower or anything so it meant having a bath uh, I went upstairs, looked over the bath to turn the taps on, and there was a spider in the bath. And I yelled, screamed for Gran, 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 help, help. Um, and up, up she came up the stairs and she was like 70, 75 years old, I think, something like that. She had a little walking stick. She sounded like Master Yoda coming up the stairs. And um, she said, it's okay, it's okay, fine, I'll get the spider out. And she got a, a duster, picked it up opened the window of the bathroom, popped it on the roof tiles, closed the window. There, there, you're okay now. And off she went. And I kept, first response was, oh, thanks, Gran. And then I thought, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. You know, look at you. You're six foot tall, built like a brick outhouse. There's a spider. It can't hurt you. You could squash it. What's going on here? And I decided at that moment to undo my fear of spiders by developing courage, by stepping towards the thing I was scared of. So next time I encountered a spider, instead of screaming for Gran, I actually leant on the side of the bath and I had a conversation with the spider. I said, right, you and me have got to come to some kind of an understanding because this is ridiculous. Like the spider was part of the process. And I thought, okay, right, I need to get it out of the bath. Um, I, I actually drew a big circle with my finger around the spider. Not a small circle because I wasn't that brave yet, but a big circle. And then I said to Gran, Gran, how do we get the spider out of the bath without touching it? Because I'm not ready for that. And I'm not ready for a duster yet, but I do want to get the spider out of the bath. So she told me, you know, you put a cup over the top of it or a glass and you slide a piece of paper underneath. I said, not paper. It's too flimsy. We need card. So in came a piece of card and off we went. Then it was lean on the side of the bath, draw a smaller circle around the spider and let's get a cup and oh i can't find card a piece of paper will do out it goes and then oh i can't be bothered going all the way downstairs to get a cup and a piece of paper uh, let's get some toilet tissue pick it up in that and off it goes and then a couple of years ago our cleaner yelled from upstairs because she'd found a spider in the in the shower uh up i went it's fine it's fine it's fine didn't need the paper whatever just picked it up and popped it out and you know, that process of developing courage doesn't happen by accident or all in one go. It comes when you step towards the thing you're scared of. It's the choice you make when you're faced with a challenge. Do you approach it? And if you do, you build courage. Um, you do that over time. You do the same with honesty. Whenever you're presented with an opportunity to tell a little porky, um, you do the same with discipline. Every time you're presented with that opportunity to either do the thing you don't want to do or procrastinate or do it tomorrow or forget it or whatever so so these are the times when we build the characteristics that we need and it's that character which will take us through these tough times i would completely agree and i think you've described it perfectly because a lot of people want to go through if we take the spider example to being able to pick up the spider Mm. And, and they don't want to go through the interim steps because, of course, that takes time. But building these things gradually and slowly means you're gradually building up the courage so that you're able to step into that, that new area and then that be that peak performance or dealing with a spider in a bath or whatever it is. But it's, it's this kind of instant overnight, I need to go from zero to, <laughs> to, yeah. to this massive leap is, is where I think a lot of people come a cropper because those little baby steps you need to take is, is how you get from A to B. It's, it's not just a simple, a simple thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I wrote a book a few years ago called How to Develop Character. And, and in it, I use a really, really simple staircase 
uh, model. You know, let's build the staircase, step up the staircase one step at a time. Once we've got a really nice solid first step, we'll build a second one on top. Once we've got a second solid step after that, we'll build a third step. And it's, it is that understanding. It's not zero to hero. You are not going to do this all in one leap. And this, this is true whether we're trying to develop characteristics in ourselves or if we're leading a team, how we build those characteristics in the team. Because there are so many business leaders that I work with or even sports coaches, you know, sports leaders who will say, I need my team to be able to do X or I need this person to be able to do Y. Uh, I need that person to be accountable. I need this person to be, you know, a bit more bold. I need this person to be more courageous. I need that person to be more tenacious, whatever. Um, I need this group to be more resilient. They're not going to do it in one leap. Honestly, they're not because you didn't, I didn't, nobody does, but let's build a staircase in front of them. And if we've got a team, they won't all be on the same starting step on that staircase, but let's just give them the next step in front of them. Don't, not ask them to go up four steps at once. Just give them the next step. Once they've nailed that one, we'll do the one after. Um, and it's that understanding of kind of breaking down these challenges, but it's the, it's not, we can't tell them. It, it's the challenge that's going to develop the character. You know, we can't say be more resilient and they will. That's not going to help. We can't even explain how we became resilient and they will. That's not going to help either. They've got to go through the challenges, but we can start structuring those challenges for them. Absolutely. It's all about little micro improvements. It reminds me of the, you know, the Sky team in the, in the Tour de France who focused on little micro improvements, those, those one or two percent improvements. And they went from a team who was nowhere to a team who literally has gone on and won everything. So mm focusing on small improvements and gradual improvements over time looking at everything can actually over time make a very very dramatic improvement in how your peak performance is from obviously at the start to, to where you want to get to which is you know if you keep improving the, the sky is literally the limit yeah yeah completely good so next question improvement often means taking stock of where you are and where you want to go essentially your goals and aims. How can we do this and ensure our challenges are big enough to motivate us, but also having that balance between achievable enough to do it? How do we get that balance right? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, you talked earlier about understanding that boundary bef between your comfort zone and your discomfort zone and operating on the edge of that. Lots of people aren't really aware of where the boundaries are because they're probably not close enough to their discomfort zone. Um, when you do understand where it is, then you can start making sure that you keep stepping into the discomfort zone. I mean, the truth with your comfort zone and discomfort zone is that they're not static at all. When we step into our discomfort zone and we stay there long enough, our comfort zone actually grows to encompass the things that we were no good at, we didn't used to be able to do, but now we can. And, and as soon as we become comfortable again, really great performers understand that that's when the alarm bell goes off and then they step out of their comfort zone into discomfort again and keep pushing themselves. And it gives them a really good, um, very sharp view on where that boundary lies and whether they're expanding it or whether it's contracting. Because the truth is, if you don't stay towards the edge of your comfort zone and into discomfort, your comfort zone will shrink around you. And the walls will start to come towards you. And as that happens, lots of people retreat back towards the cozy center. And if you do that, you will find yourself in a kind of decreasing um, world and, and your perspective will close in around you. The other thing with this um, dynamic is that if you keep stepping into discomfort and expanding your comfort zone, you develop a belief. That belief is that just because you can't do it today, it doesn't mean you'll never be able to. You just need to try. You just need to step into discomfort and stay there long enough for the comfort zone to catch up with you. And it kind of gives you that ability to think, you know, nothing's impossible. I'll just, I'll give it a go. The opposite is also true. If you stay too close to the cozy center and the walls of your comfort zone shrink around you, that develops another belief that if you can't do it today, you probably never be able to. So there's no point in trying and whatever, whatever's difficult is probably impossible. So, so this, getting this balance right is absolutely critical. Um, the other thing that I've noticed with this is that, I mean, I've, I've got two phrases that sort of sound like they're opposite, but they're not, they're interlinked. 
One is to have dumber goals. Um, I call these the daft, unrealistic, mental, bonkers, exciting and ridiculous goals. Dumber goals usually are the ones that are sort of linked to our purpose. Um, they're the ones that are worth achieving. They're the ones that make you excited, but they are probably a bit bonkers and unrealistic and ridiculous. Having those goals, I think, is great because it probably takes us towards the places that we want to be in life. To get there, though, it does sometimes help to adopt smarter goals. These are our specific measurable ones. Um, these are that's the point at which we break them down. I can remember taking on some ridiculous challenges. Um, you know, one of them was to walk 100 miles in 24 hours, um, which I took on a couple of years ago. Um, one of them was to do a bonkers event around the UK, 40 day event around the UK. And actually when I was, when I was training for one of them, you know, we were out in Madeira um, on holiday. I don't know if you've ever been, but Madeira is like the tip of a mountain that's sticking out of the ocean. Mm. Um, there are no flat bits. In fact, there's only steep bits in Madeira. And, uh, and <laughs> I set myself this, uh, just one morning went for a run, set myself a challenge to run to the bottom of the hill, turn around and then run all the way up the hill to the peak. And about a third of the way up, my lungs were absolutely burning and my legs were burning. And I looked at the peak and I thought, if I focus on that peak, I'm going to conclude I can't do it because I'm only a third of the way up and I'm in massive discomfort right now. So that's not what I'm going to ask myself to do. I'm just going to run to the rock. And once I've run to the rock, I'll run to the corner. Once I've run to the corner, I'll run to the bush. And, and all I said to my, myself was, all right, legs, I'm not going to ask you to run to the top but could you get me to the rock? And then can you get me to the bush? And then can you get me to the corner? So I'd sort of turned that dumber goal, the daft, unrealistic, mental bonkers one, into a fairly specific, measurable, achievable little goal in order to get to the dumber one. Um, and so it's, it's almost understanding how you relate those two, the dumber goals and the smarter goals together. I like that. It's a, it's a bit similar to the story that... Uh... I was freaked out by speaking in front of people. I thought, you know what? I want to get to a point where I'm confident in front of a crowd. So I went in the, basically in, the, in one year, booking pretty much 30 speaking gigs. Mm. And I think, I must admit, for the first six or seven, I was scared, I was nervous, I was shaking. But by number seven, I was joking with the crowd, I was delivering my spiel. I was actually starting to enjoy it. So again, that, that kind of relates to your bonkers goal. My bonkers goal was, you know, I'm a, I'm an accomplished speaker, but I had to go through those tiny little steps of speaking in front of smaller crowds and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it, it got me to the point where I don't have an issue with it anymore. So it's getting out of that comfort zone. But for me, definitely I could feel I, you know, I was nervous. I was sweaty. I was shaking. And, uh, those little baby steps and obviously those um, ones you mentioned those specific measurable steps that you can actually go and take actually can get you to that you know large kind of seemingly unassailable goal that you can see and that's why a lot of people don't take those steps because they don't break it down into those bite-sized chunks because taking that leap can just seem far too far too big an ask yeah, I think the other thing that often stops people is they feel nervous, they have the doubts, you know, they get that butterflies in your stomach type feeling or whatever, and they think, oh, I can't do it. Actually, one of the realizations when you go through that kind of experience that you've been through, um, you can have the butterflies and still do it. You can have the doubts and still do it. You know, that everybody has the butterflies and the doubts and everything else. You know, that, that's part of the package when you're stepping into discomfort. But just understanding that that's not wrong and it's not going to stop you um it's just part of the process helps i think to contextualize that and think okay well fine you know i don't have to feel great i mean one of the one of the myths is that if you watch professional speakers stepping on stage they're never nervous well it's not true you know if i step onto stage in front of 400 people that i've never met before um i will have that little tinge of that little kind of burst of adrenaline you know that that feeling of butterflies that that feeling um when i do that and i've i've delivered hundreds of uh speaking gigs so you know it's, it's part of the the understanding that the doubts are there for everybody um the the tickle of adrenaline's there for everybody you know it's it's part of the package and just because you feel it, it doesn't mean that you won't be able to do this 
Um, some of the athletes that I worked with felt terrible as they stepped up on the blocks in the Olympic final, but they performed really well. They did, didn't, didn't ever think that they could perform well feeling that terrible, but they did. Absolutely. And that, that was a big epiphany for me in the fact that a lot of people will go through the same feelings. We can often feel quite isolated. Sometimes we think, you know, I'm the only one who's nervous or I'm the only one who feels bad or I'm the only one who's making these judgments. But one of the big epiphanies for me was I'm not the only one who's felt this way. And other people have stepped up and gone and done this and pushed through and gone on and performed. And by only pushing through and going on and performing is the only way you can improve. Because if you want to head towards that goal, you have a choice. You know, if you don't want to do it, you'll never achieve it. And if you have to go through those little steps of, you know what, I'm going to feel terrible. I'm going to feel nervous. I'm going to feel bad. My performance is probably going to be terrible. But I know each time I do it, I will make that small increment and that small improvement so that over time I will get better. Mm, yeah, it reminds me of that line in, uh, I don't know whether you've watched the film The Last Samurai, um, but uh, this young lad in the samurai village um, says to Captain Nathan Olgren, he says, um, but I would feel scared going into the battle, you know, and Olgren says, yeah, I'm scared every time. Um, and he says, well, you've been in hundreds of battles. Yeah. And I was scared in every one, you know, it was, it's that kind of understanding, you know, from the outside, he doesn't look it, he doesn't appear to, to look scared, but it doesn't mean he's not feeling it. Absolutely. You know, it's that, it's that uh, disconnect that happens when we, we judge people's outsides and then compare them to our own insides and then say, well, they didn't look nervous, but I feel it. Well, it doesn't mean that they're not feeling it either. You know, it's very, very difficult to tell what people are feeling just by the way that they look. Yeah. I mean, it's particularly magnified in these times where we have social media. And, and I always say that what you see of people is probably the, the bit they're willing to share and show, but also that's the end product. Mm. Completely. And a lot of people have gone through all the struggles and all the frustrations and all the feelings of I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough or I can't do this because they, you know, they've gone through this and this kind of polished kind of social media thing is, you know, here, I'm, I'm now an instant success. And, and one of my favorite quotes, it's one after the news is it takes 10 years to become an overnight success because people just share the last piece. You know, hmm. there's been all this struggle and failure and knockbacks and, you know, three steps up the ladder and then you fall off and then you've got to do something else. There's all of that is part and parcel of getting you to, to where you believe you need to be and want to be. But yeah. it's funny how this society today kind of shows this very polished version and, and doesn't expose all the kind of ugly underneath. And, and I, I think in a way I understand it, but I think the, the reality of, of what goes on sometimes isn't that pleasant and isn't that nice but also is an essential process to get you to to where you want to be yeah I, I mean I've I started sharing a little while ago what I've called the story behind the story of writing my fictional book just to show people that you know when if if they pick up the book once it's published and they read it and they think oh I could never write like that the truth is I could never write like that either Right at the beginning of the process, if I, if I publish my first draft, you'll read it and go, that's terrible. Mm. It was in comparison. I mean, I do little selfie videos and I publish them, uh, you know, on social media reasonably often. And a lot of people have said, oh, I couldn't publish videos like that. Um, I tried one the other day and it was nowhere near like yours. And I said, did you realize that mine was take 18? And I'd, I'd had to bin 17 before I got there because I stumbled over my words and it sounded guff. Um, so, so yeah, if you, if you compare your first one to my take 18, they're not going to look similar. If you compare your first one to my first one, they probably will look similar. Um, it's the same right in a book. You know, if I compare my first draft to yours, yours might even be better. It probably will be because, you know, dyslexia causes me to write guff often. Um, so, so it's understanding that's part of the process. Most, most really creative people will say, you have to create 99, uh, create a hundred and throw away 99 to get one that's good enough to keep. Absolutely. That's, Absolutely. that's the creative process. That's what they go through. Absolutely. And so much more stuff gets discarded and there's so much more mistakes and that's just, it's part of the process. Mm. That's what people need to kind of understand and embrace and believe that somehow, you know, making those mistakes and doing things wrong and not being the finished article 
is part and parcel of being the finished article. And, and let's be honest, there's no such thing as the finished article anyway, because we, we should have this belief that, that we're, we're not there and we can always grow anyway. So that it's, it's a never expanding growth process anyway. Yeah, completely. And, and the other thing that I've learned over the years is that uh, perfection is a myth. Um, there is no such thing as perfection. We'll never ever create perf- perfection. If we let that stop us, we probably won't create an awful lot. You know, if the fact that it's not perfect is the barrier, it will always be a huge barrier to us because you'll never create anything that's perfect. So I deliberately and intentionally embrace what I call productive imperfectionism. Um, Let's produce something. You know, if, if I hold on to some valuable ideas in my head and don't share them because it's not perfect yet, there'll be an awful lot of stuff that I never share with the world. And potentially this stuff could be valuable to people. It could help people. So if I keep hold of it because it's not perfect, I'm actually doing the world a disservice. I see. I like that. Productive imperfectionism. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that almost sounds like the title of an amazing book. <laughs> <laughs> it possibly is. I've got to finish one before I start the next one though. So. Baby steps, one step at a time. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the, these are uncertain times. So what can we do as a business to navigate yeah forward I, in kind of crazy unprecedented times because they will happen to every business obviously we know things like covid are happening now but there will be times in your business where everything's falling in what what do we what do we do yeah step one for me is uh, realize that certainty is also a myth it's an illusion we, we think we've got certainty sometimes uh, many people will have sort of january february of this year thought they had certainty yeah, they've probably had a good few years behind them. We haven't had a recession for a while. Yeah, maybe Brexit's looming on the horizon, whatever. But, um, but they might have thought they had some certainty. We didn't. You know, we, d- we didn't know that COVID was around the corner particularly. We didn't know that it would hit us. So, um, so certainty is a myth and it's an illusion. What people are actually interested in, I think, in, I mean, certainty is really a, it's an expression that, it's an expression of confidence. And it's almost that if we do X, we will get Y. You know, it's, it's about predicting an outcome. If we detach ourselves from that, actually what we want is confidence. And we can get confidence without being able to predict an outcome. We can get confidence from knowing that our plan is a really, really good plan. It's very well thought through. Um, we've stress tested it. It's robust. We've done the hard thinking behind it. We've developed the skills that we will need to execute this plan or we are developing them. It's not perfect. It doesn't need to be perfect. We don't know whether we'll get the outcome that we're after or not, but we do know this is a really good plan and we've built the skills, we've got the knowledge and let's go and execute it. That's, that's where the confidence comes from. And I, I know of loads of teams who embrace the uncertainty. They know that it's uncertain you know, SAS units walk into battle. They, even with the best reconnaissance and intelligence on the planet, you cannot predict what's going to happen in five seconds time. Their confidence comes from the ability to know or, and, and experience tells them that they have encountered a lot of this before. They, they don't know what the answer is, but they'll find it. And, and it's that confidence that allows you to step into uncertainty. Cool. I, I think for me some of it is about control because if you want to control your circumstances which can often happen in a business there's a business plan there's the profits to hit there's x amount of widgets to sell whatever in an uncertain time all of that goes out the window so so that that results in lack of confidence or uncertainty fear and that lack of control can often lead to rash decisions Whereas I think if you have character and you have faith in your team, you've built a good team, they're good at what they do. You can often, if we use the ship analogy, navigate those rough waters. You don't know what's going to happen. Clearly, whatever you predicted to happen won't happen. That doesn't mean everything's going to fall apart. You have to have the, the toughness, you know, mentally to actually navigate these times and, and have that flexibility to think do you know what we now have the skills within our company that we can adapt and change you know we've seen lots of coffee shops now doing delivery my local coffee shop has now become a fruit and veg deliver 
place that, that takes stuff to your doorstep. So they could have shut their doors and gone, well, business is finished. They literally just opened. Now they've turned it around. So, so being flexible and being able to see opportunity, because even in times like this, there is still massive opportunity. So you can have the attitude and the character that it's all gone wrong. It's all terrible. My business will fail. Or you could think, do you know what? There's maybe something else I can do or a different way I can go around to get to, uh, to my destination. Mm. It's that understanding that we don't know what the problem is. We don't know what's coming over the horizon, but we're pretty sure we can solve the problem. Um, and, th- and there's that sort of the confidence comes from the evidence that we've done it before. We've got a great plan. We've got great people you know, let, let's just figure this thing out. We might come up with a plan and we run around the corner into a hail of bullets in the SAS world. Fine, that was the wrong plan. Let's come back and rehash it then. Um, and But it's that ability to, to be able to just roll through plan A and all the iterations that come after it and plan B and plan C and plan D um, that really gives people confidence that uncertainty is not really a problem. It's It's a fact, actually. You know, it's part of our reality. Um, we've just got to navigate our way through it. So, so yeah, I think that's, that's really the, the best answer that I've seen people come up with to the question of how do we navigate uncertainty? Absolutely, absolutely love it. So lastly, and uh, obviously appreciate your time today, but how can we get in touch with you and learn more about Simon Hartley online? So uh, I've got various social media, um, like a Twitter account and all those sorts of things. Twitter is at World Class Simon. Um, the YouTube channel is at World Class Simon. Uh, we've got at the moment uh, a, a World Class Mindset Five Day Challenge that's on our website. So our website is um, b-world-class.com. Uh, if you Google "Be World Class Simon Hartley," hopefully you'll find me and us. Um, and it's free to get started. Uh, it's going to help develop focus, confidence, motivation, mental toughness, resilience, tenacity, composure, those sorts of things. Um, And it's there. It's a resource. You know, I'm I'm just keen that as many people as possible get to use this and and understand it, apply the benefits to to themselves and their own performance, share it with their team. Um, You know, it's there. So my my plea is almost squeeze as much benefit as you possibly can from it. Um, If you come onto our website, it's, it's, it's the banner at the top of the page. So fingers crossed, you can't miss it. Brilliant. And I'll obviously link all your social media websites in, in the show notes so people could just, just click away. Thank you very much for your time. It's been absolutely amazing. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening ladies and gentlemen i really appreciate it i would also appreciate it if you could go to either itunes or google and give me a review and a star rating that really helps others discover this podcast so we can have more listeners and give more value that really really helps me if you think someone would benefit from the lessons learned today please share this podcast with them and if you'd like to get in touch with me you want to learn about more about the 4s system or how I can coach and mentor your business to scalability, then you can go to my website, www.simonbarry.tv, or you can email me at simon at simonbarry.tv. Take care.